My next guest on the podcast is Brent Beery, a multifaceted individual who wears many hats. Brent is an entrepreneur, an avid outdoorsman, and a seasonal adventure motorcyclist. He is the founder and CEO of Great Outdoors, a distributor of DOD Outdoors, which is a Japanese camping company. He has 20 years of experience living and working in China. Brent has a unique perspective on the country's rapid economy development and culture transformation. As an entrepreneur, Brent is always looking for a new way to bring adventure and excitement to the outdoors. Our sponsor for this episode is Ride Clean, a simple and effective way to keep your motorcycle and car looking like new with its easy to use formula to shake. It's all you simply do is shake, spray, and wipe. Ride Clean is sure to impress. Made in America with Carnuba wax, uh, UV protection, smells amazing. You can get, you can enjoy a mirror-like shine every time. Visit their website, rideclean.co, and use promo code R. Promo code RB Podcast for 25% off and free shipping. Check them out. That's rideclean.co. Also available on walmart.com. Mr. Brent, thank you for being hey, here man. on Thanks the Right Balance me. Podcast. Thanks uh, for having me. So I know you're staying at a buddy's house in Burbank, yep. and Ed, thank you for setting this up, and Nikki, thank you for introducing us to Ed and making this happen. But uh, wh- where are you originally from? Maryland. Maryland. Maryland, yeah. Maryland. And, and you've traveled the world. You've yep. lived in China. You've lived in, I, did you, I think, Japan. Or Did you um, live in Japan? So or am I making that up? First year abroad was France. That was junior year abroad, so no big deal. Parlez-vous français? Back then I did. Ah. Um, and then um, I did three years in China and thought I kind of, at the time, I thought, okay, I've seen it and done it, you know. And I got an offer to go to Denmark, Copenhagen. Went for a year. Had a blast. But Denmark is a, <laughs> I mean, I love the place, but it's quiet and sleepy. So after a year in Denmark, I did my best to get back to China and then spent Another seven years in China, um, decided now, 10 years in China. I've done it. I've seen it now for real. Went and did an MBA in England, and that ran me right into the global financial crisis. So my big plans Mm -hmm. to be a London banker (laughs) collapsed around me as the um, world finance, you know, kind of fell. And um, the only place I could really find opportunity then was China. So I went back to China again for another 10 years. So all in, I did about 20 years in China. That's a lot. What, what was the original? I, I, I know you just said why you went back to China, but what was the uh, initial reason? Did you have like an opportunity, girlfriend, job, school, all of the above? It's usually a girl. Let's see what he says. <laughs> it was not a girl. Okay. Okay. So um, college roommate went to Alaska and became a fishing guide. And he was one year ahead of me. It's like sending me back frozen salmon, you know, and all these fantastic stories and pictures, and he just had a blast. And he's there now working for Wells Fargo, very successful, and loves Alaska. And it sounded so exciting that that's what I thought I would do too. So I actually, my first round of job applications out of college was to be a fishing guide in Alaska. Um, and I didn't get the jobs. And then I was sitting there one day. It was kind of like an end of term, and uh, about to graduate dinner for graduating seniors, and one of the professors at the table told this story about um, this student he had known once who ended up in Asia trading things between like Vietnam and Burma and China and Japan and India and doing all this crazy stuff. And he made a packet of money 
and then came back to grad school and started kind of his adult life. And I was like, sign me up. That sounds so exciting. That's exactly what I want to do. So um, uh, I looked at a map of Asia and I thought, okay, Japan is probably the coolest place to go, but it's done already. You know, it's already developed. There's not much opportunity there. What is going to be the land of the future? And I, I picked China, just kind of based on, you know, this was almost before the internet, right? So this is just based on a relatively limited understanding of what was going on in Asia at the time. I thought China's the place to be. And um, I found a job teaching English at a university, and that's how I got over there originally. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Before the internet, man, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of opportunity. Like, you know, because they're, they're all the ch- that's a lot of opportunity. I mean, it's overwhelming of opportunity. Because yeah. you think of China 20 years ago, and now? It was 1997, and um, trillions, trillions of dollars of wealth were created in China during that time. <laughs> I, yeah. didn't, I didn't get any of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not poor, but, yeah. you know, the, the real fantastic generation of wealth was really... Um, by Chinese for Chinese. There weren't a whole lot of foreigners, people like me going over there. I mean, I had, I had great experiences and great adventures and, and, and did a lot of business and, and lived a you know, decent life out of it. But uh, individuals like me going over there, there aren't many of us who really got rich. And big international companies that went over, very few of them really got rich. They had success maybe, but the actual profits you know, wired out of China back to the home balance sheet are not that much. So, um, so all that trillions and trillions of wealth really did accrue to, to, to Chinese people and Chinese companies. That's crazy. How, what part of China were you in, and how difficult was it to? Uh, did you, you obviously had to learn the language, right? Yeah, um, I didn't speak a word when I went over the um, the program that sent us gave English teacher training and a little bit of Chinese teacher training here. It was in uh, Pasadena actually uh, before we left. And do you know Chinese is a tonal language? No. Okay, so. Uh, what, what does that mean? That's, for, to me, it's still fascinating. Um, China has, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese has four tones. Uh, Cantonese has more tones. Vietnamese even has more tones. Um, and a, a tone is that if you say a flat sound, ma, that gives the word one meaning. The second tone, so ma, flat is the first tone. The second tone is rising, ma, like you're asking a question. Third tone is dipping, ma, and the fourth tone is falling, ma. All right. Now, <laughs> if you change the tone, you change the meaning of the word into a lot of same spelling, same everything's the same. And to a lot of Chinese ears, the tone is more important than the consonant. Mm. Like if you get the consonant wrong and the tone right, they'll understand you. If you get the consonant right and the tone wrong, they won't understand you. It's wild. So when I was getting ready to go. I, I went to the local bookstore. This, you know, I didn't have a CD player in my hand. It's a long time ago. But I got these cassette tapes to learn Chinese. Yeah. And I was really excited about it because I wanted to get started. So on the car ride home, without looking at the book, I throw in one of the cassette tapes. And it says, chapter one, repeat after me. Ma, 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 ta, ta, ta. And doing the tones, right? Well, I hadn't looked at the book, so I didn't know they were doing tones. So I'm repeating along. I'm just going, ma, 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 all first tone. Yeah. And that goes on for 10 minutes. Then she says, end chapter one. I was like, this is easy. <laughs> I got this. I got it. <laughs> and then I got to Pasadena, and they had a real Chinese uh, teacher there. And she gives the class, and she's trying to teach tones. And she said, okay, ma, easy. Yeah, I got it. She said, ma, second tone. That's like you're asking a question, ma. Okay, she said, raise your eyebrows, and you'll get it. And it was easy. 
third tone, the dipping tone. She said, as you say it, ma, lower your chin and you'll get it. And I got it. And then the fourth tone, I got stuck on the fourth tone. And she tried and tried and tried with that's me. That's the dip. That's the fall. That's the fall. And she's like, it's like you're angry. And I was like, ma. <laughs> she's like, no, it's ma. She said, say it like you're angry. Ma. And I just couldn't get it. And, and I mean, I tried for a, it was, I put effort into this, right? I could not get it. And I sat there and thought to myself, I'm going to Chinese to learn China. I'm going to China to learn Chinese and have this adventure. And I can't even say the fourth tone. Like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm making a mistake. And I was in China for, I want to say, six months, eight months before I ever got that fourth tone. Um, That's still impressive. I mean, I know what you're saying. You were frustrated with yourself because yeah. you, you know you were capable of learning it faster or, or you had the belief you didn't. But still, in six months, you're picking up all the tones. Well, when, when were you fluent? Um, okay, so the deal I got with the school that I was teaching at was um, when I got there, I told them I wanted to speak Chinese. And they said, we've got an offer for you. We won't pay you, but we'll give you free tuition at our university foreign language school for, for foreigners studying Chinese. So what I was doing was I was studying Chinese at the university all morning, and then I was teaching English to the university students all afternoon. And I want to say it was um, six months, not, not six months, three, four months where I could order dinner and tell a cab driver where I wanted to go and be understood. And it was a year before I could have very simple conversations. And it was five years before I was having a level where I could actually like work in, a, in an office with other Chinese people. And this is everyday university learning, teaching, daily life. I mean, you're surrounded by... What, what, and I'm sorry, what city were you in China? Uh, yeah, so, so that was in Nanjing. Nanjing? What, what so Nanjing that? is capital of Zhejiang province. Uh, sorry, Jiangsu province. Um, and it's... It's northwest of Shanghai. Um, back then, it was six hours because there weren't uh, freeways and uh, high-speed rail. Now, it's an hour by high-speed rail from Nanjing to Shanghai. And, and the thing is, is that in my experience, Hong Kong, you'll run into people that speak English. You'll run into people that speak a bunch of languages you know, from all over the world. But once you get out of Hong Kong, there's, there, it's Chinese like or Cantonese or... Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely true in the South. Um, i Shanghai is a lot like Hong Kong. Be Beijing can okay. be a lot like less so Shanghai. I'll meet foreigners who lived 10 years in Shanghai and can't count to 10 in Chinese. Um, you know, because there's so much opportunity to speak English. Yeah. So to that extent, I'm glad that I was never in those big, very Westernized cities because it forced me to learn Chinese. Right. Yeah, because when I when I went to China, I had to go to Guangzhou, Shenzhen, uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, another city, and then I went to Hong Kong and Macau. But I went to those other cities first, and I, I couldn't believe it. Like no English, like zero. It, 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 and they don't understand. I don't know if they were messing with me, but they didn't understand like basic things. Like I'd jump in a cab and I'd be like Hilton, and they'd be like, "What?" And I'd, and I'd translate. I'd say Hilton ten thousand ways, and they just wouldn't get it. And then finally, because my phones wouldn't work, you know, because Facebook, Gmail, all that stuff doesn't work in China. So then finally I was able to save it. And I would, I'd be like, I, I think I took a screenshot. And I pulled it up and they were like, Hilton. And I go, <laughs> like I said that, dude, like, come on. You know, but like zero, 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 just a few of the hotels, obviously where we were staying at, they spoke English, but it, it was just mind blowing. And then you go to Hong Kong and man, like they, I, I heard Spanish and Russian and French and it's just it's wild. It's a different country. It's, yeah. it's not even, 
It's like Florida here. Florida's Florida is a different country. That's not part of the U.S. You know, all the Cubans and Latin Americans and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole COVID thing. Nobody's wearing masks. And you're like, what the fuck's going on? This is not America. You know, that's what Hong Kong felt like in China. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then you ride motorcycles. Did you ever ride motorcycles in China? Or what countries have you ridden motorcycles in? Just just U.S. and Canada. Just U.S. and Canada. Um, so friends of mine had a bike club in China. and a um, bike club? Like an MC? Yeah. Very serious. Legit. Okay. Like, like tattoos and like big deal, hardcore initiation. And they were riding and they were riding illegally. They had, you could buy a motorcycle in China, but you couldn't get a license for it. So they were riding illegally. Um, But it seemed to work. So I came back to the States and I got my license. And by the time I got that endorsement, and that was the first time I'd ever ridden. um, By the time I got that endorsement back to China, they had cracked down on it. So my dreams of riding in China never never materialized. Mm, that's terrible. Yeah. And you've ridden in, in uh, Canada and the United States, yeah. uh, California, what parts of Canada? Um, what are your favorite rides? <sighs> and what'd you ride? All right, let me, can I give you the background on it? Yeah. I got, I got a story on this. Yeah, yeah. I, I did the endorsement, and I'd ridden the bike for whatever that is, three or four days on the, on the course. You know, I'd never ridden a bike on the road. And the endorsement had been 10 years ago. So I had not ridden. I hadn't touched a bike in 10 years. And I'm living in China, and I've got this um, corporate gig, great life, big salary. Things were going great. And something, I had a personal tragedy. It's not a podcast conversation, but something happened. And I walked on life. I just walked out. <clears throat> Started drinking very heavily. I was engaged in what you would probably call self-destructive behavior or whatever. But I end up back in the States, and I'm just drifting, you know. And I ride by a, a motorcycle shop one day. And I'm like, you know what? I got nothing else going. I'm going to get on a motorcycle and just get lost someplace. So I walk in, and kind of right there in front of me is this BMW F700GS. And I had seen probably two, three years ago the Ewan McGregor, Charlie Borman, uh, Long Way Round. Yeah. Where they ride, I think, the R1200. But anyway, I was like, I'll have that. And I hadn't touched a bike in 10 years, right? So swipe the card, uh, the guy wheels the bike out in front of the bike shop, and he's like, there it is. And I kind of looked at it, I kind of panicked. I was like, dude, <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't even know how to turn it on. <laughs> so he goes over like the basics with me, and he shows me how to open the, the gas tank on those under the seat, so he shows me how to work the gas tank and whatever. And he sees that I'm looking nervous, and he says, look, there is a dead-end road right behind the bike shop. You go around the bike shop, and there's a road you can just run up and down a couple times, get Get the feel for the bike. Great. Go around the bike shop, and right at the mouth of this dead-end road is this bike, group of bikers, Harley guys, leathers, real hard guys, you know, not, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. not like weekend dentists riding their bikes, like hard yeah. bikers. Leather vests, big beards, tattoos, looking mean. And so I'm feeling a little self-conscious, and I'm barely, barely holding the bike up. I get down there to the, I have to turn, take a left to get onto the dead-end road. There's a field in front of me. And I hit the handbrake, and the bike doesn't slow down because I was pulling the clutch. Nice. Of <laughs> course. I'm pulling the clutch. So I was going too fast to make the left. There were two big concrete blocks blocking the entrance to the road so cars couldn't go in. It was just for bikes. And, I, and it was a narrow entrance, and I was going too fast to make that turn. So I just rode right out into the field <laughs> in front of these guys. When I get out into the field, I go to put my foot down. The grass was kind of high, and I couldn't see if it was a depression there, and my foot didn't hit the ground, so the bike goes over on top of me. 
Oh and my God. when the sales guy had shown me how to work the gas tank, he hadn't closed it all the way. So when I fell over sideways, the cap pops open and gas is pouring out over me and the bike and everything. And these guys, they thought it was the funniest thing they've ever seen. Right there, just laughing and laughing. and It's pretty funny. It was <laughs> funny. Like I would have been laughing that, too. Yeah. I have no problem with that. Um, it was very frustrating at the time. And then because of the way the bike landed in the depression, the wheels were kind of high above the body and I couldn't get it back up. So it, I eventually had wow. to ask these guys to come over and help me ride the bike, right? Um, but it turns out those guys were so, they were excellent guys. They stood there with me for half an Friendly, hour. Nice. Yeah. Gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, they were, hard, they were a hard bunch of guys. But they yeah. stood there with me and they, like, they asked me what I was doing and, and um, gave me great tips on like getting into biking and how to like plan the route and where I should go and everything. They told me about, um, you ever heard of Tale of the Dragon? Yeah, Heels of course. Gaps? Okay. So I was planning the route and he was like, look, man, he said, one of the guys was like, never pick a destination, pick a direction. And I thought that was, I thought that was kind of a Zen, like, you know, yeah, yeah. advice. I love that. Like the journey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's all but, about the journey, not the destination. But he says, one place you have to hit is Deals Gap. You got to get down to Deals Gap. And then he, then they told me there's this, um, he said, if you want to take it slow, a great way to learn the, to ride the bike is there is this. Federal Park Road System. It's a parkway system. And it starts in Northern Virginia with Skyline Drive. And it's 35 miles an hour. No stoplights, no stop signs, anything. Camping all along the way. It goes 70 miles or something where you pick up Blue Ridge Parkway. And then you pick up Smoky Mountain Parkway. And that takes you to Deals Gap. And then you get over to Nashville and you get um, Natchez Trace all the way down to New Orleans. He's like, that's a great ride. If you're not an experienced rider, it's a great way to learn. It's open road, safe, yeah. 35 miles an hour, almost no cars, and there's no stop signs or crossroads or anything, almost no. And I did that. It was great. I spent, you know, a week just just doing that trip down to Sudan. And and it's such a great bike. Uh, You know, I know it's overwhelming and it's big. You're like, what the fuck? This is humongous. But, like, uh, I I took a course called Rawhide in Valencia. Mm -hmm. And the way the instructor explained it, you know, this is for, you know, advanced. They teach how to go lakes and drops and rivers and whatever on the bike. And they go, look, it looks like an elephant, you know, because my my, GS is a 1250. So it's got the almost, it's got a 7.8 gallon tank Mm -hmm. plus the cage. And he goes, it looks like an elephant, but it rides like a mouse. Like it handles like a mouse. And once you get used to it, it it rides so fucking well. And people are just overwhelmed by the bags and the tank and the size and everything else. But it's it's so nimble. I I, I love that bike. And interesting enough, uh, three weeks ago, I was at the BMW dealer getting a service on my bike. And this guy just bought a brand new bike, brand new GS. I have a 2020. He bought the 2022. Beautiful paint job, everything. He's like, oh, man, look, I bought my bike. And, 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 you know, I was like, congratulations. And we were just kind of having casual conversation. And the reason I bring this up is that as I'm walking out, you know, we had a cool little chat. We exchanged numbers. Uh, as soon as I'm walking out, he's like, hey. And I go, what's up? He goes, I've never ridden a bike in my life. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he looks over his shoulder. He's like, I've never ridden my life. Yeah. And I go, what do you mean, dude? He's like, can you give me any advice? I go, yeah, take a fucking class, like, you know? And then uh, I, I took him outside. I go, look, let me find some classes here. Register in the class. Uh, when are you picking up your bike? He goes, well, they ordered some parts. I'm going to pick it up on this date. And I go, call me up. I'll ride it to your house, drop it off. And he's all right. He lives like an hour away. So I went, picked it up, dropped it off. It was parked in his garage uh, till last week. You know, he finished this class, got his license. He didn't even have a license. Yeah. 
He didn't have the license, and then he did it. So it reminds me of that story. Yeah. So people are still doing that stuff, you know. I haven't asked him if he dropped it or anything, but you mentioned uh, camping during the thing. What, yeah. What's yeah. DOD? Uh, yeah, DOD. Um, and is it DOD or is it DOD? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is, is DO, it? It's DOD. Okay, yeah. okay. And it's a, you know, it's a Japanese company. And when they when they came up with the name, they weren't thinking about Department of Defense. It's just fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate when we get over here to the West that that's that's the first thing that comes to, comes to everyone's mind. And, and the shirts have a badge uh, as a symbol, <laughs> as a yeah, logo. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So DOD is a it's a high end uh, Japanese camping brand. Um, DOD, sorry, Japan, uh, Korea, China, Asia generally does camping a little bit differently. Um, they have, I, I divide camping into, into backpacking and then camping, car camping, you know, when you're driving to your site. And I think in the West, we tend, tend to think of all camping as backpacking. You know, we, we, we use um, gear that's light and small. And the feature, the main feature is that it's light and small, that, you know, uh, you get camping chairs the size of a water bottle and tents that weigh like six ounces. Um, those are great for backpacking. They're not great for camping. There's no reason. There's no reason to maximize, minimize size and weight when you're car camping, right? And Japanese have, have kind of realized this before we, we have. And so because they're mostly car camping, or sorry, those guys who are car camping, they have camping gear just for car camping. It's big tents. It's comfortable. They have four-inch thick. They're self-inflating mattresses that feel like memory foam. They're nice. They're luxurious. Um. And you know when you when you're in with backpacking gear, you sacrifice so much comfort that you get right. a, you get a bad night's sleep. You're cold. You're whatever. But with this so, stuff, so, so I just want to clarify: when we're talking about car camping, we're talking about you, you leave your house, you pack up your car with all the comfortable, wonderful stuff. You get to the campsite, you unload from the car, and you're done. Versus full on backpacking, hiking, climbing mountains, and okay, right. got it, got it. And the way, so I, I I've been in Asia for 20 years, and I've been in camping like this for a long time and I was in the industry already I was selling in Asia um, western brands into China into Asia and when I got back here three years ago I realized that we weren't doing it like that that people were going out car camping with backpacking gear and they were having bad night sleeps and bad experiences and and missing out on sort of comfort and luxury that they could have had if they had the right gear you know so contacted DOD and we launched in in North America and of this Japanese brand, so it's it's big tents, it's comfortable mattresses, it's it's cast iron cookware, you know, it's it's, it's going luxury. out. Sorry, it's a luxury. It's luxury. Yeah, it's it's comfortable. And my argument is, if you're more comfortable, you go camping more often, and you stay out camping longer, so you get a better experience. You know, yeah, that's a good way to balance it out. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I don't know, I don't know what the term would be, but I, I never imagined Asian people camping. You know, it, it's 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 like, is it a big scene out there? Do they have a lot of campgrounds? Um, I, you, you just don't. I, I mean, I never thought of it. But if you would say, do Asian people like you know camp? I'd probably probably not. Like, <laughs> okay, so y- there is, especially in China, there's less um, available public land. In, in Japan, there's a lot of public land. Um, you can't you can't camp on a lot of it. Um, how to say they? The way, especially Japanese people camp can seem a little odd to Western eyes. Um, you have like these camping weekends that are actually at parks very close to the city. Mm. And they'll set up, you know, 200 different groups will come and they'll each set up their tents and it'll be this massive tent city. And 
just over the shoulder, you see the skyline of Tokyo, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the opportunity to do what we have here with all of our public lands, especially in the western part of the United States, is rare. But having said that, camping is hugely popular. It's just that they have less fantastic places to do it. Yeah, I see that. Uh, tell me more about DOD, about their 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 idea when they started, you know, the year they came around. Yeah, founded in 1997. Um, and it's, it's a... Like, what numbers did they... Like, if it's... why I, I guess that's just... I, w- I want to know what made them start. Like, what they did they see a big opportunity in the Asian market, or was it more towards the American market? No, so they just arrived in the West two years ago. Okay, so the, it was originally over there. Yeah, it was, it was only Japan. Um, and the, the sort of grandfather of this kind of high-quality luxury camping in Japan is Snow Peak. That's a brand founded in 1950-something, right? They've been around for a long time. The thing about Snow Peak is that it's a very staid, it's very serious, you know, it's, it's very, like, proper. And DOD saw an opportunity to be a little more playful and a little bit less, I don't want to be critical of Snow Peak, but a little less, you know, self-serious, more yeah. playful. So the logo's a rabbit, you know, and the gear is fun. And um, yeah, they got the, the little mushroom tent. They, got a, they got a tent that looks like a psychedelic mushroom. Yeah. No, my son thought it was the Mario Brothers. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's Mario. It looks like the Mario Brothers mushroom where, like, the Smurf houses, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're just, they're just more playful. They're not so serious about it. They're, you know, the, the whole idea is camping should be fun, so let's all relax and just take it easy and have fun. Be playful. Yeah. And it should be like a family thing where it's just making people happy and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So where the kids can have a good time. Go out someplace beautiful, eat great food, drink, hang out with your friends, just enjoy yourself and relax. That's what it's all about. It's not about scale, the 10,000-foot mountain, you know, carrying 30 pounds of gear on your back, everything you need, camping, you know, cookware, sleeping bags and everything, and, and doing this arduous hike. Though there's plenty of room for that, and everybody respects you know that kind of backpacking activity but no this, that's not what we do load up your car go someplace beautiful set up a camp where you're going to be comfortable and enjoy yourself with friends and family i, I want to jump back uh just my curiosity um living in china what was some of the stuff that just blew your mind away uh you were talking about drinking can you drink in public can you drink at the campgrounds is it, it you know and again you know whatever you remember maybe you don't remember much you know but what what blew your mind away because I don't know, man. I, I, it, it's it's crazy. But again, I, I just didn't know the in and outs. Oh, man. that's I have to go back a long way, right, to think about my initial um, impressions of China. And first, I'll just say, you know that um, expression, you can never dip your foot in the same river twice? Actually, I don't. Okay, so it's it's some kind of a... Zen, or I don't know if it's Hindu. Metaphorical. Yeah, but the idea is that the river's flowing, right? So the water you, you put your foot in this time has now 50 miles away. Next time you get back to the river and you put your foot in again, so you can never put your foot in the same river twice. Okay, so I always said you can never visit China twice because back then, less so now, but back then it was changing so fast. We would, um, I was in Nanjing for that first year, and then I was in Hangzhou, uh, which is just southwest. It's south of Nanjing, so southwest of Shanghai, and about the same distance, a little closer to Shanghai. Um, I was in Hangzhou for a bunch of years. Um, when we would take the train into Shanghai, the Shanghai back then, not now, uh, was right in the center of the city. And when you come out, out of the train station, you'd be surrounded by the Shanghai skyline. Well, I would go to Shanghai every 
three or four months. And every time you'd walk out of the Shanghai train station, it would be a different skyline. They were building buildings so fast. They were changing the street grid so fast, putting in freeways and metro stops and everything else that, that every time I walked out of during that time, late nineties, early two thousands, every time I came out of that train station, I'd be looking around like, okay, where am I? <laughs> like where, where did the buildings so go? So different. Yeah. yeah. Wild. Um, as far as things like drinking, um, the, how to say this, China, Chinese culture, Chinese government, political system, um, legal system is extremely strict, extremely strict on a certain set of things. But they balance that by being extremely relaxed on other things. Mm, explain. Um, if, you, if, if you wanted to protest against the government or whatever, you'd be in a lot of trouble very fast. If you wanted to... I'm talking about 20 years ago, not today, but 20 years ago. If you wanted to get drunk and wrap your car around a tree and not hurt anybody else but yourself, that was like not a big deal back then. Wow. The law was entirely focused on um, supporting the government and not so much worried about those kind of other crimes. And I would say especially vice crimes, uh, drugs, prostitution, gambling, were just free-for-all, untouched. By the police, and in fact, in, in, in fact, you know, probably somehow run by the police, you know, through what? Through, well, standard, <laughs> yeah, 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 standard corruption. Something. Um, that's that, what was understood or said. Right now, all that has changed. Right, all that has changed. Yeah, because all the gambling and all that stuff now is in Macau. Is, is it only in Macau, or is there still uh, where it's approved? Legally, it's only in Macau. Only in Macau. Well, in other parts of Southeast Asia, like when you fly to Manila, there's casinos everywhere. And that's yeah. only 30 minutes from Hong Kong by plane. But yeah, um, you know, inside China, it was, it was very normal. You had all these underground gambling dens and you had all those vice crimes. Excuse me, not, not very well hidden, you know, yeah. all, all, all done now. Um, that we know of. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I would, the blatantness of it has all stopped. You know, the, it's not it's not in your face the way it used. I'm not saying it doesn't exist anymore, but it's not in your face the way it used to be. Um, but you know, you there was no drinking age. A ten year old can walk into a store and buy a, a bottle of you know spirits, and um, there was there were age limits at the clubs. Usually eighteen, some of them were twenty one. Like clubs didn't want kids coming in and getting drunk and falling all over the place, but. Um, but at the same time, you could send your 12-year-old to the liquor store, right. buy cigarettes and beer for you, for you. And then, you know, you, there was no open container laws. You could drink anywhere. There was no public intoxication laws. As long as you weren't bothering anybody, you could be drunk anywhere. You know, it, was, it was very liberal that way. It was very how, relaxed. How, how, did, how did that, um, what was your opinion on seeing that? Were, were you like, this is fucking crazy? Or were you like, look, this is interesting. Like, do you see more alcoholics? Did you see kids abusing it versus like, how we abuse it? Do you see a pro or con? China didn't need an underage drinking law because Chinese kids weren't really underage drinking. And that's there's a lot of cultural reasons for that. The main one I would say is that, uh, have you ever heard of the gao call? No. Okay. So it's the Chinese SAT, except that it's way more than the SAT. It is, it is your high school grade point average plus your SAT plus all your references all put into one. It's a one number from one test, and it's all that matters for your college placement. Wow. 
And parents, you know, they're very committed to education. And so they would focus on the gaokao from the teenage, teenage years. Until, until you're 17 or 18, whatever, and you take that gaokao, you do not come out of the house. So kids, weren't, they don't have a normal high school life like North Americans have. They don't have soccer teams. They don't, you know, yeah. have free Football, time. Karate. None of that. They study, study, study. They study for the gaokao because it, it, it fixes the direction of your life if, if you want to go through a university education system. Um, yeah, so kids, you know, they, they back then just didn't, didn't misbehave. Um, you didn't see drunk high school kids, you know, running amok. Um, it wasn't an issue at all. Um, yeah, but you see this like in a lot of other countries where it's like it's not a big deal that they can, you know, buy it and you don't have a problem. You know, Spain, Europe, you know, everywhere. Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, but but in America, it's like, no, no, you know, it has to be 21 and over. And, and then you see the biggest problems where it's like people are not allowed to drink and then they drink behind everybody's back and they're asking strangers, excuse me, sir, can you buy me a bottle? And then you don't know what this stranger's going to do and what he did to the bottle. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's more risk. Right. Yeah, I think a great example of that, if, if you look at um, England and France, in France, they have a drinking culture where drinking is not taboo. Little kids start very early drinking alongside their parents at the dinner table, and they grow up with what I would say is a pretty healthy relationship with alcohol. In England, you know, drinking is something that's only for adults, and when kids come of age, they start binge drinking like maniacs. Yeah. And it's a real problem. Um, you know, you, you go around town, you see these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids drunk, out of their minds, fighting and breaking stuff and just behaving badly because for, for whatever reason, you know, those two strategies of dealing with alcohol and introducing alcohol to kids, one of them has worked very well in France and one of them has not worked very well in England. England has a real problem with binge drinking. That's true. I've, I've a lot of fights, a lot of arrests, a lot of everything. It's a big deal. They don't know how to control it. Yeah. And you think, and, and it's probably back to that age thing. It has to be. It has to be. Same thing, United States. You look at uh, this this is kind of off topic, but um, you know, I was talking to somebody about electric cars and you know, uh, self driving cars and non self driving cars, and it's like we right now we lose forty thousand people a year on accidents, and it's usually healthy people drinking, yep. you know, that, that's DUI, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. Like I I drink as soon as I turned twenty one, I was fucking happier than fuck and started drinking like crazy. You know, but I drank before that too. I'd go to Tijuana, yeah. <laughs> cross the border, and drink over there. But I feel like uh, restricting it is just—it's just going to make people want to do it. It's like drugs, the whole drug thing, and uh, Joe Rogan's touched base on this a lot. It's—it's it's by making it illegal, you're not stopping anybody from doing drugs. You're—you're you're just. Um, but if it's totally illegal and someone really has a problem, if it is sorry, if it's totally legal and someone has a problem, then you can't. You can't coerce them to get treatment, right? So I think that you, you look at, like, in Western Europe, where they're very liberal about drugs, it's still illegal to do heroin. And the motivation is not to put people who use heroin into jail and punish them, but it's that when you see someone who's really gone off the end, you can actually pick them up off the street and take them to treatment and coerce them to get treated. It's not that you have to wait till they are at the point where they're asking for treatment. If it's totally legal, you can't do that. Right. There, there, there is that exception, but... 
to, to the point that I was making is, is if you make it illegal, you're not stopping anybody from sure. doing it. The problem sure. is, is now you don't know what kind of quality of stuff they're getting. You don't know if yes. it has fentanyl. You don't know if it's yes. mixed with this. You don't know how crappy it is. Instead of getting it from a source where it's being tested and you know exactly like, oh, look, this created at this and this created at that. You're buying it from some, look at weed. You know, back in the days you bought weed, you had to ask right. five friends. Then you had to meet some dude in an alley you had no idea what you were buying. You had no idea what the quality was. You have no idea where they grew it. It had stems. It had seeds. It popped. <laughs> it, was, it was a big fucking mess. And now look how you buy it. You get a fucking menu, and you're just like, oh, look at this. Oh, wow, this is very impressive, and this is uh, interesting. Oh, I, w- I want an upper. I want a downer, you know? And, and it's just back to that point. You're not stopping anybody from doing it. Yeah. Like, I think Oregon right now, they just opened up all drugs. All street drugs are legal in Oregon. Did you hear about that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, they did that, I think, a year ago, two years ago? All streak drugs, you know. So, of course, now you got to find out if somebody's really addicted, uh, how you treat that. And there's going to be other issues. But I don't know. I don't know which way is the right way. It's just... Well, I mean, to your point on quality, look at alcohol during Prohibition. You know, those guys were filling up glass bottles with stuff that should not have been consumed by humans. And they were killing people. They were blinding people. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. So then again, it's like, well, now it's legal, but now you have alcoholics. When do you know how to treat the alcoholics? But still, you're not going to have people dying from, in the drug case, fentanyl. Look at this fentanyl numbers, you know, in schools. It, it, it's, I don't know, man. It, it, we're, we're trying to figure it out as we go, obviously, you know, but I, I don't see. I just feel like the more restrictions you put on something, the more people want to do it and just get away with whatever they can behind their family's back, behind their spouse's back, behind the more illegal you make things, people are hiding themselves from everybody and it creates more problems. Sure. You know, Uh, where where do you see, do you have any travel plans? Uh, Where do you see yourself moving to next? Um, What's, what's that? Camping hikes, what's going on in the future? Okay. So we were happily living in China until COVID hit. And then the Chinese, they, I say they kicked us out. They didn't kick us out. They made it very hard to stay. And so we came back to the States. I didn't know at the time, but with what happened with the lockdowns in China, I'm so happy we left. So for the first time in 20-some years, I find myself back in the States, and we settled in Seattle, which is a great place to be if you're into outdoor, you know, in the outdoor industry and if you're into camping and hiking and things like that. Fantastic. Um, but I've got twin three-year-olds. And congrats. Thank you. And they do not travel well. Yeah. <laughs> in any distance. So, um, you know, I do take them on camping trips. I've had them on, I've had them on week long winter camping trips. They're little troopers, man. They're, they're, they do great. Um, but not by plane, you know, it's just not, it's not nice for them. It's not nice for me. And it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I don't have, you know, I think that we're in Seattle for the foreseeable future. And aside from business trips, like I'm down here, um, uh, in LA this week on business. Aside from short business trips, I don't see anything until they are. You tell me six, seven. When 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 can kids responsibly ride in a plane without going nuts? You know, my son's turning. My my son just is turning four at the end of the month, and from two three months ago to now, we just did our. Uh, I want to say our kind of big trip, but we just we just went to Vegas on. Saturday, and we came back today. Driving? Driving. 
he handled that pretty good. Like, you know, and, and again, maybe people do this all the time, but like for, for us, it's like the first big trip. And I was like, okay, he did like, we didn't have to stop much, you know, uh, actually we only stopped once and he used the bathroom and he was cool. He slept halfway, played the other half. It, it, it was pretty good experience. It was so good that I was like, you know what? I, I think I'll try like in the next year, I don't know, probably five. I'd try five, but it's crazy because two, three months ago, I'd be like, oh, traveling, you know, no, let me stay with grandparents. Uh, that's not even driving. I wouldn't want, you know, put them in the car because I did one other trip to Lake Arrowhead and that was kind of a disaster. But I think it was the spinning of the hills and going up and the altitude. I think a lot was going on and that's why it turned into a disaster. But we didn't make it up. I had to come back down because we kept stopping and, you know, crying and the ears popping. And I think it was like two and a half at the time. And now from that two and a half to, to almost four, four pretty much, it, it's a big change. I, I think it, I think it's a good age. I've heard people say three and a half, four. Yeah, and actually, I have to take back what I said. I do have a trip planned. We are going to drive from Seattle to Salt Lake City for skiing in nice. March. And I, cho- I chose to drive because I don't want to fly with the kids. But also, um, so we can stop a lot along the way. So we do two days down, yeah, ski for a couple days, and then two days back. Um, <clears throat> I think they'll be okay. What do you think of those, um, a, l- a little random, but uh, the Sprinter vans or those camper vans? Ridiculous or? Van, van life. I mean. Not van life. Like to live a full van life, that's ridiculous. I'm talking about like, you know, renting a, a Sprinter you know, van for like a month and just kind of like, you know, going on. But kidding trip. it out as a, as a camper van? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's cool. It's not my, it's not my speed. Um I, I think it's cool. I, if, if I'm, my, my preference is overlanding. Um, I got a forerunner. Yeah. So what I like to do is, you know, pack up the forerunner, roof rack and everything um, with the family and the dog and then go someplace cool. Back some forestry service road, you know, views of, of um, fantastic mountain ranges, whatever. That, that's, my, that's my preference. Guys who want to go out and live in a van, yeah, great. It's just a slightly different flavor for the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Camping is, it, it almost seems like it's more of a lifestyle for you. It's not really a hobby. Uh, do you have any hobbies that you've picked up um, on the way? Like, you know, some people get into photography or some people get into like videos or now you have the kids or, you know, like, like, have you picked What's your hobbies? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I fish, you know, it's a lot of outdoor stuff. Yeah. Um, I bow which, hunt. Which, which goes along with, yeah. uh, with the camping. Yeah. So I bow hunt, I fish, um, camping. Um, but sports wise, you know, um, I I played soccer until until I started feeling like a fool on the field because the little kids were the young guys were running circles around me, you know. So I stopped uh, ten years ago. Um, and then sports wise, you know, I I, I fought my most of my adult life. Nice uh, about boxing. Uh, I did some boxing, mostly Muay Thai, living in Asia. Yeah, because um, you can get down to Bangkok really easy and train. Um, it's a big sport over there, huh? I'm like they fill up. It is the national sport of Thailand. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I just started taking, um, which some people are kind of teasing me, but I started taking uh, the Krav Maga. Yeah. Which, you know, somebody's like, somebody just wrote recently. They're like, dude, it's not a real martial art, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, I never did it because I think it's a martial art. I, I did it, you know, because it's self-defense and I get a lot of good cardio out of it. Um, the reason I didn't want to do jujitsu is because it's fuck. I'm, I'm at an age I don't want to dislocate anything, you know. And the, the the fact of just thinking, 
again, I'm at that age where I'm like, do I really want somebody to be breathing on me? So another dude sweating on me, breathing on me. Yeah, and balls then, on your forehead. Yeah, yeah. Ball, yeah. yeah and then I've fucking, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe when I was younger, I would, I should have done that, but it I didn't cross my mind. And Krav Maga, it's like, you know, you get the bad classes, you get to learn a few techniques, you know, whatever. And, uh, I mean, I like it. I like it. I burn good enough calories. You know, I usually burn like 540 calories in an hour class. All right, let me, let me tell you what happened to me with that. Um, <clears throat> boxing, Muay Thai, really into it, really training hard, spending a lot of time on it, ring fighting, just, you know, really committed to it. And did a little mid-career break 10 years ago, and I opened a restaurant, which on, in the evenings was a bar, and on Weekend nights, we take out all the furniture and make it a club, bringing a DJ. Nice. That's like the dream it was, scenario. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. I had to stop after a year because it was too much fun, but it was a lot of fun. So we had this club night one night, and I thought I was badass. You know, I'm fighting and training, and I'm fit. Yep, and Bar, lounge, club. Well, a fight breaks out on this club night, and it was not an ordinary fight. It was brutal. Bottles over people's heads, chairs broken over people. The, not to be too gruesome and graphic, but there was, the floor was covered in blood. It looked like a, it was, un, it was an unbelievable fight. And I was in the middle of it, not fighting. But what I was trying to do was I was going into the fight and trying to get all the heavy, dangerous stuff from the guys who were fighting and drag it and get it out yeah. of their hands. They were just punching Glass each other. bottles, metals. In China, as a bar owner, you are responsible for what happens in your bar. If somebody gets killed in your bar or seriously injured, it's on you, right? So I had a lot at stake in this fight. It wasn't just, you know, altruism trying to save these guys from each other. And in that experience, I realized when you train boxing, you train Muay Thai, you train for a guy standing in front of you, one guy, and he's following rules. If it's boxing, he's not going to kick you. If it's Muay Thai, he's going to kick you, but he's not going to tackle you, right? Yeah. But in that scenario, surrounded by people, I, I felt helpless. I thought all this training was useless. I, I felt totally helpless. And at the time, there was this Israeli guy, and I'm not going to say he was Mossad, but he was Mossad. And he's, he's uh, working in China as a bodyguard. There's a lot of uh, Israeli bodyguards of rich Chinese in China. And this guy's uh, coming to my bar occasionally drinking. And I, and I tell him this. And he's like, I've got the solution to your problem. You need Krav Maga. Yeah. And, um, and we trained together for years. I actually ended up going to... Um, to um, Israel in training. That's amazing. Yeah. But, but, but again, some people want to, I don't, I don't want to say they want to make fun of it or anything, but it's pretty fucking, I like it because, you know, that, that's part of the exercise. Some of the exercises is like, you know, uh, you know, uh, hammer fist and then side and kicks and then, all right, uh, while you're doing this, find an item on the ground that somebody can use against you. And you're always keeping your head up and you're always looking and you're fucking exhausted. And, and I see the benefits again. I, I just started, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think there is a, a value to it. People I saw that really, um, developed Krav Maga successfully came to it from another martial art. Because Krav Maga is not about teaching you to strike. It's about teaching you to use your strikes in a multi, in, 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 you know, in a group fight or for people attacking from behind with weapons, you know. And so people come into Krav Maga having studied years of Taekwondo or boxing or Muay Thai or karate or whatever. They can adapt the Krav Maga techniques to the 
kicks, punches, strikes that they already know. That that's that's what I saw. You know, they they spent even when I was in, when I was training in Israel, they spent so little time actually teaching striking and so much time teaching the technique of being in a group fight, for example. So I always thought learn some striking discipline first and then take that with you to Krav Maga and learn the Krav Maga techniques of street fighting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's what I mean. We, we, we learned the striking, but obviously the striking is, okay, somebody came from behind you and they grabbed you around the neck. What do you do? You know, you know pluck and hit, hit, attack, and then run. You know, uh, somebody comes up and grabs your shirt. Somebody, you know, pushes you. Somebody pulls a knife. And it's always these quick movements, these quick strikes, and then, like, try to turn their body away from you and make sure there's no danger. I, so you saw value in it. Oh, oh. Huge value. I, I just never did any martial arts in my life, so I have nothing to compare it to. All right, and so I just have like the little people that when I make a post, you know, people are like, "Hey, bro!" Like I'm like, "Dude, I like this." It's not a. I don't think it's a martial art. I think it's a self defense mm-hmm. um, exercise. Well, not not exercise, but self. De- it's self defense. Period. There's a kick in Muay Thai called the teep. It's where you raise your knee into a front kick into somebody's midsection. Yeah. They use it in Krav Maga. In Krav Maga, you will train that 20 minutes yeah. of real instruction. You'll get 20 minutes of instruction. You'll use it a lot, but you'll get the real instruction of 20 minutes. In Muay Thai, you get weeks of instruction on the teep, right? So when a Muay Thai guy comes into Krav Maga, he knows how to teep. A Krav Maga guy, I, I'll, I see it all the time, you know, guys who come straight into Krav Maga without having that background, they do it, but they lack that sort of technical precision that you get from coming from those other disciplines into Krav Maga. So it, it just kind of um, whatever skill you have, you, you're coming from. It just kind of makes it. It it, 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 it allows you, it. It allows you to adapt it to street fighting conditions. Yeah, boxing is a phenomenally effective fighting technique. If the guy is standing in front of you, there's only one of them. He doesn't have a weapon and he doesn't know how to kick. But any of those things aside. And boxing becomes much, much less effective, right? Yeah. What does a boxer do if the guy picks up, you know, a pipe? He doesn't have training for that. Yeah. But a boxer who goes into Krav Maga knows how to fight, knows how to handle himself, knows how to throw a punch, but then learns, now what do I do? If there's two guys, one's in front of me and one's behind me, what do I do if that guy is kicking me, not just punching me? What do I do if that guy picks up a weapon? That's that's what Krav Maga does. It takes the striking fighting discipline, and adds to it that layer of, of street savvy that makes it effective in a bar fight or a brawl or if you get attacked in the street, self-defense. Yeah, it's, it's funny because every, every time I've probably done like 40 or 50 classes right now, and almost every time that I do a class with the class, the, the, you know, I, I go different times whenever I can go. Everybody's like, man, you're a fighter. and Where'd you learn how to fight? And you, you've done this before. And, you, you look know, like a fighter. Yeah. And, uh, well, it was street fights, you know. And, and, and in Florida, <laughs> Florida, uh, you know, I lived in a neighborhood where I was like the only white boy. And, you know, you get picked on and fights all the time. They would trap me. And I had a fight. So I, I, I grew up fighting. And with Krav Maga, it's, it's easy for me to adapt. And then people are like, hey, man, you, where, where'd you train? Or what's your background? I'm like, oh, I don't have a background, just street fights. And they're like, no. Nah. So it's easy because it's so street, you know, fighting where you're getting attacked by two, three people all the time. So I, I, I don't know. I, I like it a lot. And then the bad classes, I've never done bad classes. So then I'm like, oh, shit, this is fucking great. You know, 20, 30 minutes of just nonstop hitting strike strikes. And then you're, 
my lungs are like, fuck, I can't handle this. But you keep, I keep pushing myself. It's a good experience. It's a good experience. Um, yeah. Are you gonna put your kids through uh, martial arts? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. I, I'm sorry, boys or girls? Boys. Boys. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Actually. Um, <laughs> I. <laughs> If I should say this or not, no, so I'm going to offend some of your listeners. Say it. I was in an MMA club in China run by a French guy who was a national champion, not MMA. He was a national champion in, in a discipline called Sanda. It's a Chinese discipline, but it's a real fighting discipline. French national champion, very serious guy. Comes to China. He's doing business, but he's also fighting, and he sets up this MMA club, just friends, you know, no tuition or anything. Just show up at the gym, split the gym fee, fight. And I asked him the same question. I was like, so, so what about your kids? You're so into this. And this is what he said. <laughs> he said, I put them in Taekwondo. So that way they can't hurt anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so that way they can't hurt anybody. Hilarious. And we, you know, in that MMA club, they were, were like, hey, <laughs> they were Taekwondo guys. And man, they could do backflips and splits and they could kick things off the ceiling. 15 feet in the air. They were amazing athletes. Yeah, but they were gymnasts, you know? Yeah. And when we would actually line up, when we would square up to fight, they it's it's not it's not a fighting discipline, you know? It's it's a it's a fantastic form of developing coordination and flexibility and strength and conditioning. But when it actually comes time to fight, it's it's not the discipline that you want. And I, I apologize to your <laughs> listeners who have been who are like, you know, tenth dad black belts in Taekwondo, but no, I, uh, it, it's, it's, I, I got a friend of mine, his kid, and he's been putting his kid into karate for years. And it's, and I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Like, you know, you got to put them in, in judo, jujitsu, something. And now they finally changed and they see the difference. They see like, this is more serious. Uh, I think MA, MMA has changed it up too. you know, the, the ultimate fighting matches and stuff like that. Like all the bullshit people that thought can do something got into those octagons yeah. And they got fucked up, and they're like, "Oh, wait a minute! This is, this is not, <laughs> this is not a real fighting technique." So there's a China angle to this. So Chinese has uh, wushu. That's the that's the very traditional form of Chinese martial art. And then they have tai chi chuan, which we think in the West of tai chi is this like slow whatever, but it's actually a martial art form, and it's considered to be by the Chinese um, the, the the superior, you know, the best of the martial art forms in China. And therefore, in the world, of course, and um, and they train and train and train, and um, and they're very serious about it, right? So this Chinese dude goes and learns MMA, and he comes home and he issues a challenge. He says, "This stuff you guys are doing." Bruce Lee said the same thing. Bruce Lee said exactly the same thing forty years ago. He said, "This stuff you guys are doing is too focused on learning routines, studying movements. You're not fighting each other enough." And because of that, it's not, it doesn't actually work in a fight. I challenge anybody. And so China, one of China's, did you see this already? Did you know about this? No. Yeah. One of China's most famous practitioners of Tai Chi Chuan, this guy was bulletproof. He was famous for being just a badass Tai Chi Chuan fighter. He steps up, he, he takes the challenge, right? These guys get into a gym. There's 100 people. It's all on film. It's all on YouTube. The fight lasted 10 seconds. If the MMA guy just took him apart, I mean, it, it didn't last 10 seconds. It lasted one exchange. Really? They put out a fatwa on this guy. He had to go into hiding. The Chinese were so pissed off that he had disappointed, exposed 
this fighting style as not effective against, I mean, MMA is actually a conglomeration of a lot of fighting styles, including a lot of Asian fighting styles. But he was so upset that this, you know, imported fighting style had beat Tai Chi Tran that this guy got death threats. He had to go into hiding over this. But go on YouTube and look it up. You know, MMA fighter beats up Tai Chi Tran master. Um, it's all there. Yeah, there's just so many martial arts that existed. I, I mean, I remember in the 80s, there was a fucking karate school on every block. Yep. Every block. Learn karate and then kung fu. Yep. Learn karate kung fu. Every single block. Never took them. But uh, when, once you saw MMA come out, you're like, uh-oh, everybody's shutting down. Do, 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 do. But like I say, it's great for kids. Because you... you, you those Even martial karate? Arts, yeah, sure. Yeah, you want to teach a kid Muay Thai? Let him go to school and yeah, throw in a rotating elbow into some kid's eye socket. I mean, you will do damage, but but um, karate and taekwondo don't really have those, you know. Yeah, the striking is much less powerful in them, and you really focus on technique rather than that real like animal, just you know, furious attack that you get in in the in the more combat sports, in the more um, sports where you're the the martial arts where you're fighting each other more. Yeah. Yeah, because my brother-in-law, like I said, his uh, his kid has been doing karate for like five years, six years, and now he's been doing judo less than a year. I mean, the way the guy, the way the kid walks, talks, he got his yellow belt. How old is he? He's uh, probably eleven now, twelve. No, he's tw- he's twelve. See, with karate, he would have kicked somebody in the leg, and it wouldn't have been a big deal. But with judo, he's gonna bounce some kid's head off the concrete in. I oh, mean, he's already doing competition. Oh, yeah, true. but 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 he's he's matured so much. Obviously, it's it's twelve is an age where you start maturing quite a bit. But you know, before like he would be like, "Oh, I was in karate today, and I did ha-cha, ha-cha. It looked like a kid just playing, like ha-cha, you know." Now he comes back from judo. He's like, "I could probably flip you right now, Robert. You're, yeah. you're, you're kind of big, but I think I could, I could flip." Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, can. whoa, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, what else do you want to talk about? I mean, do you want to hear some crazy stories about life in China, business in China? I, w- I want to hear, yeah, I want to hear the craziest shit. I want to hear the craziest thing in China, and then I want to hear one of your craziest camping adventures. Or camping advice adventure, something like that. All right, I can talk about China all day long, so let's get camping first. Okay. I'm going to tell you, I want to say it's the best day of my life. Right? That college roommate who went up to Alaska, um... He would We did this all through my 20s, so we did this, I don't know, five, six times, almost every year. We'd miss a year, so he'd invite us up for the salmon run, and he would arrange serious trips, float planes out to the middle of nowhere. You know, you get you, you inflate rafts, and you float a couple miles a day, set up camp, fish, eat the salmon, pack up camp, float, you know. That, that right there already sounds amazing. All right. One of these float trips was on Kodiak Island. At one point, there's no trees where we were, right? It's all tundra-like land. At one point, I stood up on a little rise and looked around. I could see eight brown bears. Eight. So we were just surrounded by bears, right? And they're coming into camp every night. We had this, um, we had this electric line put around the camp with a fishing battery, and they, but they would come up. Every night, they'd come up to camp. They wouldn't come in. All right, so... Get to this, it's called a confluence, you know, two rivers coming together, and um, it was a red, we were fishing kings, but this was a this was a red salmon spot, and they had stopped, the red salmon had basically gone up as far as they wanted to go, they were stopped in this wide spot on the river, you can't fish reds with uh, bait, you can only snag them, hook them, so you have this kind of like a 
two hook rig that you just drag through and the reds look, they'll get mad at it because they don't like stuff coming by yeah. and they'll grab it. There were so many reds in this spot that when they would sh- go from one side of the river to the other, they would make a wake. I mean, there were tens of thousands of fish here. All right, so here's the story. I walk down to the bank to fish it and I snag a red and the commotion of me snagging the red pushes all the fish over to the other bank 30 yards away. When they come over to the other bank, this young grizzly bear, brown bear, hops down and grabs a fish, and that commotion pushes the reds back to me, and I snag another one, which makes a commotion and pushes the red back to him, and he snags another one. And we team fished for an hour, and I caught 10 fish. He caught 10 fish. It was the best day of my life. It was just awesome. Fuck, man. It sounds like you should have had a beer out. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I did. Yeah, it was such a great experience. Yeah, I, I, I saw one of those, uh, I saw one of those, uh, a photographer, he was in one of those areas, and he was just by so many brown bears, so many, but obviously they were just so full, they have so much food, they're, they're just chilling, they're just chilling. The only thing you can do wrong is get between a sow and a cub. Short of getting between a sow and a cub, you can walk up and slap them on the ass. They, they're, they are fixated on the salmon, they're not interested in you. It's just the mothers and cubs that will get you into trouble. They would walk right by. Yeah, because the, the photographer was taking pictures, and then somebody else was recording. There was like 14 of them around them, and you're just like, oh, my God. There's no other there's no other place in the world that you can get away with that because right. you'll get torn apart. Business in, in China. Okay, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you some life in China first. Oh, man, this is, um, yeah, okay. So I got a couple of, I've got a couple of stories similar to this. Out with a friend, out with some friends for dinner, all right? Now, Chinese generally, at this time, this is 20 years ago, they would generally eat dinner at 6, finishing at 8, and we would eat dinner at 8, finishing at 10, right? So when we're coming to dinner, they're usually going out of dinner. My favorite restaurant is in this kind of, it's on a, um, it's on a, on a cross street that has a lot of restaurants, right? So this time of night, it's, it's busy. It's happening part of town. And when we get there, my buddy, um, he's a long-time China guy, a lot longer than me, spoke perfect Chinese, and he's, but he's a, he's a kind of coarse, rough guy. We went out to get cigarettes. And two minutes later, the waitress comes in and says, your friend is outside the restaurant in a fight. Mm. So there were eight or ten of us at the table, but there were three young guys, me and two other young guys. And I said, okay, guys, let's go grab Patrick. I knew he was drunk, and I know how obnoxious he is when he gets drunk. And so I wasn't going out to, to support Patrick in a fight. I was going out there to drag Patrick out of the fight and apologize for his... I, <laughs> I, right. I knew that from the second I got up from the table, okay? Right. I still have some PTSD for this experience. I, I, I still get worked up talking about it. Um, we, I walk out, and I can see a crowd of people moving away from the restaurant north up the street from the intersection. And I jog up to catch up because I realize that's where Patrick is. And as I jog up, I go past... Five or six busy restaurants of guys, when these Chinese guys at the drink, they would go out to eat. They would always drink at dinner. And so by the end of dinner, they'd be, you're not wasted, but inebriated, lowered inhibitions. And they saw, they saw, from their point of view, they saw a foreigner walking up the street in an argument, and then three foreigners run up the street after him. And that drew everybody out of the, out of the restaurants. Right. So now we've got a big crowd of people following us. I catch up to Patrick. I'm like, what the hell, man? What's going on? And there was this older couple, 60s, you know, yelling at him. And he said he'd gotten an argument with them when he went out for cigarettes. And Patrick, God bless him. I love him. He's a good friend. I've known him forever. He's a good guy. But 
especially when he's drunk, he can be aggressive, aggressive, rude. and he really knew how to curse in Chinese. I never learned to curse in Chinese intentionally because I didn't want to have that at my disposal when I got in a fight, right? Yeah. He'd insulted you them. You've been into a lot of fights, man. <laughs> You've been around a lot of fights. Not because of running my mouth, I'll tell you that. Um, I got, I caught up and I said, Patrick, get out of here, I'll take care of this. I wanted to separate him from the couple that was angry. And he looked at me and he goes, this is a bad scene. Get out yourself. He was wiser, wilier than I was. I didn't realize what I was facing. But I, I turned to the couple and I stopped them and I let Patrick get away. And I said, as you would, I said, you know, my friend's drunk and he's an ass. And he's, you know, I, I apologize. I really apologize. And they're saying, he said this. And I was like, I know exactly how he talks. And he's, you know, he's not a bad guy. He was just drunk. And I really apologize. And I kind of calmed them down. But in the meantime, all those drunk guys from the restaurant had gathered around us. And they weren't paying attention to what I was saying to the old, older couple. They were telling each other, oh, you know, that foreigner beat up a Chinese woman or something like, you know, this, this went through the crowd. Right. All right. There's three of us in the middle of this crowd, 200 drunk guys. And they- 200 drunk guys? Yeah, I, yeah. At that point, it was 200. Got much, much worse. So they started getting aggressive, like shoving us and like getting in our face, you know, and screaming in our face and stuff. And I, I didn't really know what to do. Uh, so I started walking south down the road, back towards where we had started, back towards the intersection, into an even bigger crowd of people. And then, you know, a bigger crowd? <laughs> 200 people? Chinese, uh, I, I, one, of, one of the culture shocks for me coming back to the States is like, where is everybody? You look out on the streets and there's like three people walking down the street. In China, there's always lots of people everywhere. For a lot of reasons, but anyway, excuse me. They started getting aggressive, and they were like, I was trying to walk away from the problem, and they didn't want us to leave. They wanted us to stay there so we could be arrested for whatever, you know, beating up, whatever they thought we had done. So in the process of me trying to walk away from these, the three of us trying to, they were like grabbing us, pulling on our clothes. So my clothes, my shirt was like half ripped off. I had these bloody welts on my arms and on my neck from where they were mm. like grabbing us. They were shoving us. It was real, it was real aggressive. They, they weren't hitting us, but they were... They were really, out, you know, out aggressive. So I get back down to the intersection. By this time, the crowd is so big, it's blocking the intersection in both directions. It's a, it's a mess. It's a mess, yeah. And I'm stuck there. They won't let me leave, right? And somebody's called the police, and the police turn up. And, the <laughs> and I thought the police got, I'm bleeding, right? My shirt is torn. I've obviously been assaulted, right? comes up he hears everybody shouting he turns to me and he says right you're under arrest <laughs> and i i knew <laughs> i knew something about the chinese police right and, I, and one of the <laughs> like what the yeah and one of the policies of chinese police is that um they're very um segmented in their responsibilities and not any police can ar arrest actually arrest foreigners except for those foreigner police right and he wasn't one of those so I knew he didn't have the right to arrest me. I was like, no. But it's probably the best case scenario, right? Yes, but I, in the, in the right, heat of right, the moment, right. that's not what I was thinking, right? Right. I said, no, absolutely not. I, I said, you know, I'm the victim here. I've obviously been assaulted. Arrest these guys who've been beating on me, right? And, it, oh, by the way, in the meantime, the older couple had come back down the road with me in the middle of this mob, and they were defending us this tiny you know old couple are trying to hold off the mob from attacking me they're like you got the wrong guy you got the wrong guy yeah, yeah <laughs> they were defending to do with us that. yeah and even when the cop came they're like it's not that guy and he's like i don't care he's gonna he's under arrest right he, his ego was already like Ugh. my girlfriend um my, now my wife 
comes into the mob when the cop gets there to try to negotiate with the cop, but also to defend us from what, what's going on, and they just turned on her brutally. They didn't physically assault her, but they were just screaming and spitting at her and stuff. And I was like, I was like, get out of here. She walks back out of the cl- out of the mob, and from the outside, she calls my cell phone, and she says, "Okay, so important detail: where the row of restaurants was behind that was a massive construction site, and all the workers are migrant workers from all over China. They come in for these construction jobs, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, anonymous guys." And drunk. 8 p.m., all construction workers in China at that time, and we were drunk. And she calls back and says, the construction workers are now more than the... Because the guys who were attacking us, they were college-educated middle-class professionals, right? They were the guys who go out for nice meals in the evening. They were just a little bit drunk. They weren't dangerous people. They were just mad. But these guys... She goes, they went back and they've got their tools. They've got masonry. They got hammers. They got crowbars. They're, they're like, they're just waiting for the cop to leave. She's like, you have to get in that police car and get out of here. So I kind of like sucked up my pride. And as cool as I could, I turned to the cop and I said, sir, you may arrest us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they pile the three of us into the police van. The mob's like attacking the van, slapping on the windows, flipping us off through the windows, you know. And... We drive out of the mob, and it was like, oh, you know, what a relief. And uh, I, and then I'm sitting there thinking, I was like, wow, this cop is actually a genius. He, he just def- entirely diffused that situation. Everybody back there is happy because the guys they think did it are arrested. And I'm out now. I'm totally safe. Safe, yeah. I was like, this guy's and a genius. Con- and the construction workers are not going to get to nobody. I was like, that guy just completely solved the problem. And I think, and I was like, what's going to happen is we're going to pull into the police station. He's going to let me out. He's going to pat me on the back and say, boy, you're lucky I came. That's what I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not so. Um, I, I have no problem with Chinese police. They're, they are upright guys. I've never had a problem with Chinese police. But, but in this case, um, they, did, they did think that they had some kind H- of solve. Handcuffs or no handcuffs? No handcuffs. No handcuffs. Um. They held us in an interrogation room and it actively interrogated nonstop. I was never in the room with fewer than like six people and they were always asking questions for, I want to say we got to the police station at 8.45. We didn't get out of there until four in the morning. Okay, so what was the crime? What was the crime? Some guy insulted, he cursed at, he said something very impolite to some other people. There was no assault, there was no theft, there was no anything. And for that we were... Detained for seven hours, and they were fixated on, um, I don't know what, because they had also brought the older couple there. So they had their side of the story, and I know they didn't throw me under the bus. Like they, right. they I'm sure that they said that's not the guy, because they were saying that the whole time. But they really wanted Patrick, and Patrick had gotten away. Right? And I was like, look, I don't know who, the, I don't know who he is. I, of course I knew who he was. I don't know who he is. I don't want to give him up. I don't know who he is. I don't know his number. All I know is his, his first name is Patrick, and I don't really know anything about him. He's just a guy that turned up at dinner. And they wouldn't let me go until they got Patrick's phone number. So I step out of the room, and I call Patrick, and he goes, um, he goes, this is all your fault. I told you not to get it. <laughs> like, Patrick, I'm only in this soup because of you, buddy. So he had, a th- he had a burner phone. He gave me that number. I gave it to them. And I hear them. I can hear from the interrogation room. They're outside the door on the phone with him. And I hear the cop going, well, then you give the phone to the train conductor and tell him to turn the train around. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
Patrick had told him he got on a train to Shanghai. He hadn't, right? And right. the cop was like, we're going to turn the train around to get you. We're going to stop a commuter train from Hangzhou to Shanghai, bring it back to Hangzhou just so we can arrest you. Yeah, that's not happening. Of course not. And they never did anything about it. No one ever followed up on it, but whatever. It satisfied their obligations to, you know, order, and, you know, and, and rule of law to, to interrogate us for seven hours over some... Do- I didn't even see it happen. You know, I wasn't even a witness. Yeah. But they held us for seven hours. I, um, I still get excited talking about it. I, I get, like, worked up talking about it. I had... I say PTSD when people have real PTSD over real events, and this wasn't one of those. But for years after that, when I would go into, like, open spaces with big crowds in China, I would get, like, I'd feel myself get on edge. You'd feel it, yeah. Yeah, I, I had um, two incidents. Uh, one, I had a seven, eight-hour interrogation. Uh, and then another one where I had to escape with the, with the ambulance. Because I was in Vegas. This was two separate situations. One, I was in Vegas, and we were drinking, and some buddies, and then these other guys, they were drinking, and they were, they had a, they were with some buddies. But one of the main guy, you know, he had his girl, and the girl was looking at us, and, you know, yeah. long story short, turns into a fight. Kicks are being thrown. Ashtrays are being thrown. Anyway, so security finally comes. They break it up. We're, we're, we're being, you know, we, we get taken to the security office. Uh, Las Vegas PD shows up and they're like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? I was like, look, I was attacked. I got hit with the ashtray. I had a like little cut right here. They're like, you want to go to the the hospital? I was like, fuck no, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm like, you know, get me out of here. The cop walks outside. When he walks outside, he's um, you know what? I'm just gonna arrest everybody. Everybody's going to jail tonight. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, my head. I'm dizzy. I'm dizzy. The the cop was like. You're full of shit. You're fine. I go, I'm dizzy. I'm dizzy. It hurts. I'm holding my head. Call an ambulance now. And he, he was like, mm, and finally he just calls an ambulance. Uh, so then I was at the hospital, got released at the hospital. You know, the nurses, are you okay? Oh, I can't believe what happened to you. I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and then I was in Cuba, and I, I didn't think about it, but uh, I brought my drone, and I flew my drone in communist cuba on the main road which is called the malecon where the like ocean goes onto the, the highway and i'm flying it from inside of a car and i have the film i'm flying it from inside of a car i don't know how they knew what car i was in but a cop car shows up pulls me over uh the cops like get that drone down now i'm in so much get the drone down no hurry 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 the drone's coming he's like oh man I go in, they take me, no handcuffs, no no nothing. And where are you from? How did you get the drone past security? How did you get the drone through this? How did you do this? All right, uh, wait outside. I'm waiting outside, smoking a cigar. Detectives come. The drone, the drone, the drone. Uh, I was like, do you guys want me to turn it on? They're like, no, 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 no. The military came. You know, like, the, what is this? It, it turned into such a shit show that luckily, because I spoke Spanish and, you know, my, you know, my family's from Cuba, I was able, oh, so you're, you're, your mom is from Cuba? Oh, before oh, she left when Fidel came into power? Oh, so you're those kind of Cubans, huh? Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Anyways, I walked myself out of it, and they finally let me out, and they're like, we're going to keep the drone, we'll give it to you. We'll give it to you once um, once you leave. But what was interesting is that I called the, uh, I called uh, Consulado Americano, the, the American consul. They, they said, you're going to jail. 
The last person that was caught, last American that was caught with the drone in Cuba was in jail for two weeks. We can't do nothing until you're arrested. As of right now, you're detained and you're free to go in and out, but we can't do anything till then, but you're going to jail, you know? So again, the fact that I was able to talk out of it was, was pretty, pretty amazing. And those things do traumatize you. Those things are... The experience of the police was uncomfortable. The experience inside the mob was terrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, future interaction with Chinese police, I didn't, I didn't, you know, have any lingering like trauma. But man, but anytime I was in a big open space with lots of people, I was like, was it just open spaces? Like, or like if you crowded spaces, like a, crowded spaces, crowded spaces, like if you get into a, um, like a subway or something like that, yeah, you you, you feel it. Yeah. And that theme, lasted years. Theme parks. Yeah. Th- well, like and, sports and stadiums. I couldn't go to. I couldn't go to. I went, but I was always uncomfortable. Like go to soccer games. Or big, like, open-air night markets, you know, full of people. Always uncomfortable for years. Yeah, but, but, but sports arenas are, are, are crazy. <laughs> They're just crazy in general. What do you got, 25, 30,000 people drinking, partying it up? I mean, it, it's, it's insane. It's insane. Well, we covered over an hour. How you doing on time? I'm fine. We can keep going if you want to. Yeah, yeah. I got more stories for you. Yeah, let's keep going. Um, I got another fight story for you. Let's go. Um, I'm living in Suzhou, working in management consulting. Uh, a friend of mine is in Hangzhou, so it's a couple hours away at the time. And his name's Tim. He's been in China a little bit longer than me. He speaks great Chinese. Tim was a NCAA scholarship wrestler. Tough as nails and very brave. And um, very nice guy, but maybe a little bit addicted to the wildness of being a foreigner in Asia at the time, right? He he liked that. So he was a guy that often, like, when something crazy would happen, I'm living in Suzhou, my friends are back in Hangzhou, something crazy, I was like, was Tim involved? Like, oh yeah, Tim started it, you know? <laughs> so when He's Tim- He's always would, involved. So like once a, once a month, he'd come up for a weekend to Suzhou to hang out. And Suzhou at the time- Isn't uh, there a drink called Suzhou? I don't know. The one that smells like foot? Well, Baijiu. Ba- Baijiu. Okay, Joe. sorry. Um, at, at the time, uh, Shanghai was very buttoned up. Suzhou was the playground of Shanghai. When guys on the week, it was the, it was the Vegas of LA, right? Okay. When guys wanted to cut loose from Shanghai, they come to Suzhou for the weekend. So all the vice crimes were there. It was a, it was a it was a beautiful it was the most beautiful tourist town, gorgeous. But at night, you know, the purple lights came on and it got really gritty. So Tim would come up once a weekend to to hang out in Suzhou, and he comes up one weekend. And we had known about this bar area right outside of town. There was an Eiffel Tower-shaped TV tower, and we called it past the Eiffel Tower. It was this warren of little bars that was um, rough. Yeah. And Tim was like, we're going, down to, we're going down to the Eiffel Tower tonight. That was his dream, to go down to the Eiffel Tower. So we, okay, okay, finally, okay, we're going to take the half-an-hour cab ride down there, go down to the Eiffel Tower. We get down there. There's no cabs down there, so we have the, ca- we have the driver wait for us. And we walk back into these, like, tiny little warrens, these, you know, all these little, like, very shady little bars and stuff. Who knows what's going on there? And there's four of us, and two of us walk into the first bar, and Tim was like, you know what, I'm just going to check out the next bar, and then I'll be right back. So he and the other guy walk to the next bar. We get beers. Tim doesn't come back. Um, and I thought we'd go find him. So I was like, check, please. And the check comes, and it's like eight times the price of what it should have been. They saw foreigners. Like, We're going to rip them off, right? What are they going to do about it? And... um 
and we had an argument and they wouldn't back down. So I threw down on the bar what we owed, what the, the fair price of the beers, and we walked out. And then all these big guys who had gathered around because knowing what was going to happen followed us out. So four or five guys follow us out. And just as we walk out, Tim and the other guy are walking down the street towards us. And they're like, they're being followed by four or five guys. They're like, you wouldn't believe what happened. They tried to jack up price, you know. I was like, what'd you do? He said, I didn't pay anything. So we paid for two beers out of four when they want, you know, a lot of money. And um, they were, they were angry, but they weren't yet past that line of aggression to really start a fight. You could see it, but they were, they were gangster guys. They were on the dark side of, you know, criminality. They were were serious guys, but they weren't ready to start a fight yet. And we were, Tim and I knew what was going on. We were pretty relaxed. We start walking back towards the cab out of this situation and they start pushing us on the back. They would just, you know, give us a shove, just knock you forward a step. Not a big deal. We just kept walking. Well, one of the guys that was with us, George, had just gotten to China, and he was really uncomfortable with the situation. And when they shoved him, he turned around and put his fists up. Mm. And the guy he did it to turned on a dime and sprinted away. I was like, I, was like, I didn't expect that to work. <laughs> Chinese guys are, especially those kind of Chinese guys, they don't, they don't back down, right? In, from any fight, they don't back down. Right. And that guy just sprinted away, and I was like, wow. I was like, I've never seen that happen before. And then we just kept on walking towards the cab. A minute later, I hear this clang, clang, clang. The guy had not run in fear. He'd run to get his two steel pipes. All right? Of course. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, fellas, fellas. And, and we start running away, which, I mean, it's not, what, it's not what The Rock would do in the movie version of this, but I still stand by it was the right decision to make to run away from that, from, from gangsters with steel pipes. It's 100%. Yeah. We're all running, and I just make sure that everybody's running, and I look back, and everybody is running, except that three of us are running towards the cab, and Tim is running towards the dude with the pipes. Oh, Tim. Tim. I was like, guys, guys, hold up. (laughs) So so we run back to this scene, and the dude has two pipes, and he runs up and real smooth, throws one of the pipes to one of the guys, and then just goes at Tim. But I didn't, get, I didn't see what happened next with Tim because the guy who caught the pipe came at me. And he did a, he did a right-handed baseball swing at me. And I, um, I covered, up, you know, covered up my head, and he swung low, and he hit me in the ribs. But I had on this heavy leather jacket, and under the jacket I, have on, I had a heavy knit sweater. And when I pulled my arms up, it pulled the jacket away from me, so there was that gap. So when it hit the jacket, it, down. it stopped it. I didn't feel a thing. This guy did a full-on swing, steel pipe into my side. It didn't even leave a bruise, right? I was so lucky. And when he went, when he went from my side, I brought my arms down to protect my side, but I was too late, so the pipe hit me, and I just You caught it. it. You hooked, hooked it. it. Yeah. We had a little tug of war. Um, we bashed each other in the face with our free hands a few times, but I ended up with the pipe. And I handed the pipe to George, who's standing beside me, and I look over, and Tim has one end of the pipe, and his... The Chinese guy's the other end of the pipe. The Chinese guy's on his back, and Tim is dragging him across the street. <laughs> so I run over, and I hop on the guy's chest, and pop, pop, pop a couple times, and he lets go of the pipe. Pop, pop, pop is in punches, not pop, pop. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah, punches, yeah, punches. Yeah, punches. And, not, and I'd actually, I didn't hit him in the face. I wasn't trying to hurt him. I wasn't trying to escalate the situation. So when I was hitting him, he had the pipe with both hands in front of his face. So I was actually hitting his hands. Yeah. But the pipe was hitting him in the face when I was hitting his hands. So he let go. So now four of us have the two pipes, nine or ten of them. No pipes. Walk back up to the taxi. And uh, this guy, older man in a purple suit, which is what mobsters wear. That's actually slang in, in, in 
China for the mobsters. It's the guys in purple suits. The guy in purple suit turns up. Very respectable. Um, not the kind of guy who tries to rip you off for beer. Turns up. It's like, what's going on here? And I wasn't sure what was going to happen because this, this could now be a much different situation, right? And um, the guys tell him. And they told him pretty openly. They're like, yeah, we ripped him off for beer and they wouldn't pay. Then we attacked him and they took our pipes. <laughs> and the guy gets furious at the gangsters. He's yeah. like, we do not treat our foreign guests like that. And he lays into them. And then Tim takes out his wallet and pays. He's like, look, we had two beers. We didn't pay for them. The guy took it and the guy's like, I'm so sorry this happened. Please come back here. You're always welcome. I promise it won't happen again. Wow. Got in the taxis. I still had the pipes. And uh, the one guy, he had now, now with his boss, there was now like a little kid. He was like, hey, can I get my pipes back? I was like, fuck you, my pipes now. <laughs> my pipes. <laughs> took off the, with the pipes, yeah. You still got the pipes? I had the pipes for years. I moved and I, I didn't take them with me. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Yeah. I'll tell you a Mexican version of, of that that happened to me. Uh, I'm with my, uh, my brother was in the Navy, so he was based in Coronado. He takes me out there. I'm, I'm like 18 or something like that. One bar is 20 bucks all you can drink. The other bar is uh, you pay for your drinks, but all the hot girls are there. Right. So you got to go to the, this one, get drunk, and you got to go over here. And as you do this back and forth, and, you know, you're, I'm with my brother and his, and his friends from the Navy, and, you know, but we keep missing, and I'm hanging out with Felix and my brother. Anyways, this, this continues. I'm trying to go back where, where the, the girls are at, where my brother's at. And they're like, enough, you're drunk. You, you, you've been going downstairs and upstairs, and you you can't come in here. And the, again, I'm 18 years old. I'm like, what? You can't tell me what to do? And actually, I was with my other buddy, Albert, and he's like, yeah, you can't tell us what to do. The guy grabs me. I, I grab his hand. I Wait, I, was this a friend or a bouncer? Or? This is a bouncer. Okay. This is a bouncer. I grab his hand. I pull up, and I hit him in the face, and I push him. He falls. And I'm like, Yes! There is another bouncer behind the door. He just turns around, grabs a flashlight, just boom. <laughs> I hear the flat, the batteries of the flashlight just. Grrr. What? And my friend Albert picks me up, uh, turns you know turns us around. Now we're going down the stairs, and there's like five bouncers hitting us with flashlights. Okay, and I hear the batteries. I'm like, at the bottom, my brother's there. Like that's my brother. Oh no, the cop pulls out a gun. And he goes, stop. And then my brother sees me. And he goes, that's my brother. He grabs the cop by the vest, pulls him back. Three cops jump on him. Anyways, long story short, they, they take us to an alley. They take all our jewelry, <laughs> all our money. The cops? Yeah, the cops. And then they go. They tell us to kick They go, you want to go to jail? And like, no, we don't want to. All right. They take everything, and then it kick rocks. And that's it. We crossed the border. I was bleeding all oh over the place. Gosh. Oh, my gosh. I didn't take anybody's pipe on that one. <laughs> But that's uh, that's the Mexican version of that one. Um, right. Crazy business story. Um, I'm, my, my first, my second job in China. I, that guy Patrick, who got me in the soup, he was my first boss in China. He did this. Um, it's kind of interesting. He he ran. I think of it as a syndicate. Chinese guys, his employees could do anything they wanted. Legal, semi-legal. Whatever they want. But they just split it with Patrick. And he provided the infrastructure and the resources to, to do whatever it was they were doing. And I won't go into detail on what they were doing. But um, his main business was Chinese antiques. Back then, 
not high-end stuff, but but like farmers' furniture, peasant, you know, village furniture, was pretty hot in the states, and there were a lot of people doing this business. You go out to the villages, you'd buy their old wooden furniture. The, the Chinese farmers were thrilled to get rid of it for real money. Are you kidding me? You know, I'll go buy something new. This thing is 100 years old and falling apart. And they were falling apart. So Patrick would go out and scour the countryside for these older antiques, and then he'd bring them back to, to a workshop he had where he had a bunch of carpenters and paint guys who would fix it up. And you, you weren't fooling anybody by, by refurbishing it. Everyone understood that these were not like antiques. You know, they were nice, vintage, Chinese-style furniture. And my job for him was to go out and help pick the antiques. So by that time, the countryside around the city was picked over. So we would go, um, me and a couple of Chinese guys, we would get into a flatbed truck and drive until the road ended, up into the mountains, just as far as you could go. And um, you couldn't show a foreign face because then the prices would skyrocket. So they would yeah. go through the village first. They'd negotiate all the prices. And then I would come in. And they, they didn't necessarily know what the Western markets wanted, but neither did I. I was 23 years old. But but anyway, I had the sort of Western take on it. Yes, no, yes, no. So just quickly, one of these villages, um, we pull up, and I'm waiting by the truck. And this old woman walks up, and she speaks a dialect. She does not speak Mandarin, right? Um, but she could just make, just make herself understood just a little bit, right? She's asking me questions. Where are you from? I tell her, are you employed? Yes. Are you married? No. Just general, you know, chatty questions. She's 70. 110 pounds, less, 90 pounds, 70 years old, not threatening, right? And she grabs my wrist with his vice grip. She's like taking me into the village. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't threatening, right? Not at all. I wasn't supposed to be in the village that the deal was I stay out, the guy's going, but I did, she was so insistent. She wanted me to go into the village so badly, right? Wind our way through this, 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 you know, um, Chinese, very rural farming village, you know, mud brick houses, not, not modern. Um, And we go into a, a house, it's a one-room house, and there's a couple there, they're in their 40s, sitting at this table, and they start this conversation, look, I can't understand a word of it, right, but it's about me, she's pointing at me, prodding me, she's talking about me, you know, it turns into an argument, it's like, it escalates, they're like shouting at each other, and then finally she grabs me by the wrist and yanks me out and drags me out of the house, to another house, where it happens again, same thing, couple in their 40s, sitting there, who knows why, we walk in, she's selling you or something? (laughs) Okay, you jumped me. (laughs) Was she, was she? third house this happens and as she's in her pitch this argument one of my colleagues comes in who who speaks enough of the local dialect to understand what's going on he walks in he kind of smirks because he sees me you know here whatever in the middle of this nonsense and then he hears what's being said and he his his jaw jaw drops he grabs my other wrist and he's like get the fuck out of here right now and so there's a big brouhaha, and he gets me out of there, and we run back to the truck. And I'm like, I don't know what was going on. That village on that day of the year was matchmaking day. And that old woman was a matchmaker, and she was going to earn her matchmaking commission by selling the white guy <laughs> into marriage <laughs> with any of the families who on that day had said, yeah, we're trying, we were looking for a match for our daughters, how this village did it, right? But you just went along to three different houses. and just It was like so unthreatening, and it was so odd. I couldn't understand what was going on, but it was totally unthreatening at this 90-pound, 70-year-old woman taking me around to these obvious, you know, nice couples. It wasn't like I was going back a dark alley with, a, you know, with a guy with a knife wound on his face. It was just, yeah. it wasn't threatening. So I just went along. And I was really stupid. I didn't, you picked up on it right away. I didn't know what was going on. 
But um, yeah, I almost got married off to some poor Chinese farmer. Well, and and, that, and, the, and I'm happy you, you told me what you were being sold for. Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, they're gonna sell them for like parts or something. No, 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 slave trade. No. <laughs> they're gonna eat them or something. Yeah, yeah, like I was getting married. Um, yeah. So anyway, so so. After Patrick, I went and I worked in this Danish consulting company that did market entry consulting, so helping foreign companies come get set up in China. And um, an American company had bought a uh, German company back in the States, abroad, nothing to do with China, except that the German company had a subsidiary in China. When the American company bought the German company and they looked at the subsidiary, which is a hefty asset on the balance sheet, they realized there was something wrong. They didn't know what, but money was not coming out. Money was going in and not coming back out. They hired us to investigate. And I was young. I'm, I'm 24 at this point. But through the vagaries of how management consulting works, I ended up being the guy who gets sent to the factory to be stationed there to lead the research. Of course, I'm kicking up. I'm not making any real decisions. I'm kicking up the information to the partners, but I'm there doing, I'm on the ground. And what I uncover is goodness um this company it was in um electrical distribution industry and they bought they bought and they bought a lot of copper and the chinese partner prior to opening this joint venture or maybe at the same time as the joint venture had participated in a scheme with a couple of government officials to invest government money this was um disaster relief money funds in case there was a flood right those guys realized it was just sitting there at the time, this is uh, late 90s, price of copper was going through the roof. And if you buy futures, you put 10% down. If it doubles, you've made 220 times your money. I mean, it's... And big, they felt big, like big, big it was a safe bet because China was electrifying the country at the time. They were buying up all the copper in the world. Prices were going crazy, and they should have kept on going crazy. So these guys had borrowed money from this government fund, and they invested on the copper exchange. And then uh, Asian financial crisis, copper prices crashed, and they lost everything. And they had leaned on this poor Chinese guy who was a partner in the joint venture to recoup the funds. And the way he had done that was he had set up a bunch of fake um, distributors. He owned them through a proxy. And the company was selling everything to these 10 companies he'd set up. And they would receive the goods on credit, sell them, collect the money, and then give the money back to the fund. Mm. And he had drained $200 million out of this company. Back then, which is... And there's actually, this This was pretty common back then, um, that foreign companies would come and do stupid things in China and get their clocks cleaned. There's a book called Mr. China, which is just stories about this. Um, but in any case, as I was investigating this, then I uncover all this stuff, and um, I actually interviewed the two guys in Beijing who were responsible for that fund, who had done the borrowing. And at the time I interviewed them, they were, he was so, I, I just, it strikes me how calm he was as I was confronting him with what, we thought, we weren't sure we thought had, he had done. And by the time I knew about it, some dumb foreigner, right, then a lot of people knew about it. And you, you don't get to s- steal from the Chinese government hundreds of millions of dollars as a, as a government official, right? That's taboo. Not allowed. <laughs> so he was executed four months later. It just strikes me how calm he was in that meeting. He was so cool as I was talking to him about it. He must have known. The writing was on the wall. If I knew, everybody knew, right? Right. I wasn't the guy who blew the whistle on him. We didn't go to the authorities with it. We were well, what, what is the execution process over there? How do they do it? Um, back then, it was a matter of like weeks. You know, there was no, there's no appeal or anything. They, they shoot. No, I know, but they shoot. shoot. Yeah. 
Rifles, old school. For wh- when I first got there, what they would do is they would take the guy who's to be executed, they put him on the back of a flatbed truck with other with cops, and they would drive him around town at like five in the morning, sunrise, to say, "Everyone, behold, the criminal is about to get it." And then they drive him to a site outside of town and make an example out of him. Let everybody see what they were doing. Yeah. Um, I don't think China executes prison p- political prisoners. They they go to jail. These guys were murderers or or. or extreme you know fraud theft that kind of stuff yeah yeah we were right in the middle of that it was crazy um and that company never recovered really wild i was yeah. 24 it was my first kind of like you know big china thing yeah, it's yeah dropped yeah. in the middle of that and in that as we were investigating i remember this one meeting one of the partners was sitting beside me and the chinese owner who was responsible the chinese partner is responsible for all that turned to that partner and said oh your daughters go down such and such street to school every day. I'm surprised. What, shouldn't they take the such and such street? It's shorter. It's a threat. I know how your daughters get to school every day. Mm. But it was delivered in a very casual, chatty way. And I saw the partner go white. Because I didn't realize either. It was just, it was, he said it so casually. Yeah. And the guy went white and didn't respond. And I was like, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't catch it either. I've been usually I'm like a little alert about that kind of stuff. But I was like, oh, that is kind of nice. You know, why is she taking the long way? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. She knows how he gets home. Yeah. How she gets home. Uh, in Chinese, do they, they don't have he and she. They do. They do? Well, do? sorry. No. They have, in written, it's he and she. But when you speak it, it's all the same word, ta. Yeah, when you say it's it. It's written, you, but it's ah, got it. Yeah. Got it. There's three, there's three written forms. Um, he, she, and it. But all, all spoken the same. Got it. Yeah, because uh, in Armenian, the Armenians don't have he, she. Really? Yeah, so you, you, you don't know. So almost every Armenian, like when they speak English, they, they, they confuse he, she. She, he. Yeah, well, Chinese don't have yes and no. What do you mean? There's no word yes and there's no word no. There's ways to communicate yes and no, obviously. You couldn't live without it, but they don't have a straight-up word yes or a straight-up word no. What about yeah? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, and when, you know, um, okay. That's weird. I didn't know that. In That's Spanish, weird. you've got um, verb conjugation, right? Yeah. I play is different from they play, right? I assume I don't right. speak Spanish. Yeah. And then you have, obviously, you have tenses. In, in all Western languages, you have tenses. And you have articles, the bread, some bread, a bread, right? Right. Not in Chinese. There are no tenses. None. There are no articles. <laughs> and there's no verb conjugation. So the grammar is That's wild. in a way very easy. But but but, un- that, yeah. but to make yourself clear in Chinese or to understand what the other person's saying requires a much higher level of understanding of the language. Because you have to you don't get those really simple, you know, played uh, as opposed to play or will play. It doesn't exist. It's just play. So you have to understand from the context of what he's saying if he means that it happened yesterday, today, tomorrow, or some distant point in the future. How I, I've I've heard this argument or this this comment that Chinese, if you English in a sense is almost harder than Chinese. Obviously, we grew up with the English, so we know English. So that's not a true statement. But like, if you didn't speak a language and you had to learn English. Or Chinese, Chinese in a sense easier than English because English you have they, the, there, there. You know, there's so many phone, you know, there's, if you look at proper English, it's very complicated. And this is why so many foreigners have trouble learning English. But my question is, is Chinese the hardest language to learn? um, The State Department, the CIA, they rank languages. Um, 
easiest to hardest to learn. Chinese and Japanese are the hardest to learn for, for, for really? native English speakers. So that's for the, native English speakers, yeah. correct? Yeah. Or for those from a Latin or Germanic, you know, background. right? Right. But if as a child learning, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But but um, here's here's my experience. When I studied French, I got to a certain point where I could uh, read books and newspapers, and then my understanding language just took off. My vocabulary took off. But in Chinese, because the Chinese character system is so impenetrable, it's so hard to learn, that I um, only, it was 10 times, 10 times the study hours to be able to read a newspaper as it had been in French. So I didn't have that access to all those rich other sources of picking up the language, like reading the classic literature and reading the newspaper and that kind of thing. It It was all blocked because reading and writing Chinese is so, so hard. Yeah. Speaking Chinese is, is difficult, especially the tones, but reading it is simply impossible. Um, it's something that, you know, it's why everyone, when people criticize the Chinese education system, they say, oh, it's all rote memorization, right? That's the criticism of the Chinese style of education. But it is that way because Chinese students have to learn. You need 2,000 characters for basic literacy. You need 10,000 characters for a, um, an educated person. And, <laughs> yeah. and ultimately, there are 25,000 characters. And, and the only way you can jam that into your head is rote memorization. And so that's how the Chinese system has developed as it, as it, as it did because of the way they write. That's wild. Uh, last question, because you, you, you bring up the French and Chinese. Uh, have you seen Loopers? The, that's the one with um, Bruce Willis and uh, where he's from the future. A long time ago. And anyways, wh- I, there's a scene... Where he has to return to his younger younger self because they killed his wife and he was living in China, and the mob did it, you know. So now he's like, I got, I got, I got to get my wife, you know. I got to protect her. So he goes back into the uh, spoiler alert for a 10, 15 year old movie, but he goes back to his younger self, and his younger self's like, who, "Who are you, old man?" He goes, "I'm you," and he goes, uh, "He goes, put that French book away." learn Chinese, it's yeah. the future, you know, yeah. something like that. And he's like, I don't want to learn Chinese. I'm going to learn French. He goes, dude, I'm from the future. <laughs> like, learn Chinese. Uh, what do you think of, uh, of uh, China's future? I know we had a separate conversation, but like... Yeah. You, um, it, it doesn't look great right now. There are a lot of macro factors, you know, um, large global trends that right now don't look great for the future of China. But I just say that in the my, my 20-some years experience in China, there have been you know, chicken littles calling for the fall of China, the collapse of China since the 90s, since $10 trillion of you know, a year of economic activity ago, right? Um, so I just say that it looks bad right now, but it was always that way. You could always, there was always... At any point in time in the last 25 years, you could say, oh, China's doomed because, and then just pick it, you know. Right. All these different factors, you know. China doesn't have um, the natural resources they need to develop as an industrialized society. China doesn't have enough um, arable land to feed its people. China doesn't have navigable waterways or so, you know, um, and they'll never build the train systems or whatever, you know. Um, There were always all these reasons. China doesn't have free press. They don't have open exchange of information, whatever. All those 25 years, they were, people were predicting the fall of China for whatever, you know, cause du jour. And now we have that still, right? And it's cogent. I mean, they're real arguments. You know, China has a demographic problem right now. Um, The one-child policy and the urbanization of China led to a 
birth rate below replacement rate. So right now they've got a whole lot of retirees and very few um, working age people to, or fewer working age people to support them. And that problem is going to get worse when they released, when they relaxed the one child policy, Chinese didn't go out and all start having, you know, five, six kids each. They stayed at one kid per family because that's what they were used to. I've got an interesting. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I got an interesting fact for you. Think about this. Second generation, one child after that. Yeah. No cousins. Can't have cousins if you don't have uncle and aunts. And there's no uncles and aunts. If your parents were single children, both single children, you have no uncles and aunts and no cousins. Does that 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 slice That's of family life doesn't exist anymore for one child families, and and so they got used to that, right? How, how many years was that implemented? Seventy five until recently. Yeah, so forty years, whatever that is. Um, Nineteen seventy five to nineteen seventy five to until just recently, they started relaxing it over the past ten years, mm. and. Um, and, the, you know, people got used to that. They didn't expect to have big families. And then it's so, Chinese real estate is so expensive right now. If you live in the city, you do not want to buy a three-bedroom, it's a million bucks in a, in, in a medium-sized city, a three-bedroom apartment downtown in the city. So um, so when they relaxed the one-child policy, Chinese didn't start running out and start, you know, procreating like rabbits. They just stayed with what they knew, which was one kid or no kids. And so it looks like that demographic problem is not going to solve itself. There are other solutions, though. Who knows what's coming with robotics, Right. Because when people talk about dem- demographic problems, they say, oh, China's labor rates are going to go through the roof because they don't have people to man the factories. Yes, fair enough. But China is investing billions, tens of billions of dollars a year in advanced robotics. Yeah. So you may not, 10, 15 years from now, we might not need, you know, might not want people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, self-driving trucks, all this stuff. China is chasing all that stuff. Um, Chinese ports right now, go on YouTube and look at videos of Chinese ports. All the trucks inside the port moving the containers from the gate of the port onto the boats, driverless. They're all robots. So, so I just, that's just one very simple example of, okay, yes, China has a massive demographic problem, but who knows what the what solution is right around the corner to that. China had other problems in the past. Solutions came. They presented themselves. And Chinese, whatever else you want to say about the Chinese Communist Party, they are not incompetent. They, they are a bunch of smart guys, and they see those problems coming, and they are working behind the scenes to fix them. Whether they'll be successful or not, you know, let's find out. But, but so, so that all of that is to say, yes, China faces very real challenges, but China has overcome lots of very real challenges in the past, and I don't see why they wouldn't, you know, continue to do that going forward. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. It, it is a world economy, you know, so we, we all need each other. I'll do you one better. Chinese legitimacy. The legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is based on we make you rich. We make your life better. That's why people support China. And don't, and don't think because they're not an elected government that they're not supported. They're broadly supported. Things are changing now with COVID and other things, but broadly supported by the, by the population, much more than any American government has ever been. Right? The legitimacy of the government is based on we make your life better. We're rising, lifting everybody out of poverty, making, you know, roads, bridges, whatever, making your life better. If that stops, if that stops, they have a plan B. And plan B is nationalism. Mm. And it's not anymore we're legitimate because we make your life better. It's we're legitimate because we protect you from your enemies. And who are the enemies? Japan, United States. And what is the trigger point? Taiwan. So what gives me nightmares is not China becoming this global economic behemoth. It's China failing to become a global economic behemoth. 
because a China with economic woes and unhappy people is going to become much more belligerent, much more aggressive in the way it interacts with its neighbors. So I, I, I hope for the success of China. And I, and I just say... Well, like I said, it's, it, it benefits... We're a world benefits economy. Everybody, yeah. It's a world economy. benefits it, everybody. It keeps peace. Benef- it keeps peace, exactly. And the United States goes to shit. Everybody deals with consequences. Russia and Ukraine, everybody's going to deal with the consequences. Europe, we're a world economy. We have to... We have to figure this shit out. We have to figure this shit out. We'll leave it at that. Um, you're, you're welcome to be on the podcast anytime you want. You, I appreciate you. this conversation. I appreciate you coming out here. And, and thank you for the gift. I can't wait to use that. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed myself. Uh, it's a great experience. So great to meet you. Thank you so much.